This is Barry Simon, and welcome to the first podcast edition of Equal Time for Free Thought. Equal Time was broadcast on WBAI New York from June of 2002 through March of 2020, airing just over 600 programs. You can find our archives, which will include the show you're about to hear, and all our future programs at EqualTimeForFreeThought.org. Equal Time for Free Thought is primarily an interview-based program which addresses some of today's most pressing issues through the lens of scientific naturalism and secular humanism. We cover philosophy, science, both the physical and social, politics, economics, education, and much more. It is our hope that these programs foster curiosity, critical thinking, and a better understanding of human nature towards a healthy new society we so desperately need to create. While this podcast was being produced, the acquittal of Kyle Rittinghouse came through. This particular podcast is not one which will discuss either the events leading up to the murders Rittinghouse committed, nor whether or not he should face the consequences of his behavior. It's also not about what many of us wonder might happen had Kyle been a black or brown person, with the state of the police and racism in today's America being what it is. But it is clear that the violence that permeates this culture and others has grown to absurd proportions. Violence of all kinds. We can point to many potential causes for the crisis we currently face. From capitalism and classism, racism and right-wing ideology, to just the fact that we live in a dominance-based society born of myths of rugged individualism and the idea that some lives matter more than others, and they don't be true. But how did we get here? Has what has gone astray about economics, how we raise children, the failed education system, all of the above? Our guests today, and many others we've had on Equal Time in the past, which she and I will discuss today, very much focuses on the way this culture raises its young and how maladaptive this has become. It's not as simple as going back to the beginning of each of our lives, to the early stages of human development, but doing so sheds much light on our current multidimensional crisis. And it also lets us see things do not have to be this way. We're living in the last 2% of humanity's existence on Earth and we have done more damage than good in this short time. But change is possible, and it's not hyperbole to suggest that if we don't, we are heading quickly to the next great extinction on Earth, and it will include us. Today's guest is Darsha Narvaez. Darsha has been our guest three times, and we are so happy she will be our first guest on this Equal Time for Free Thought podcast. Her academic scholarship has moved from work on non-conscious moral rationality to moral character education in the schools, to the neurobiology of moral development, as well as to the study of evolved parenting practices and the study of small band hunter-gatherers who represent the type of society in which humans evolved. All this comes together in a moral development systems theory that emphasizes the ongoing epigenetic plasticity of how we develop our humanity and our morality. 
Her books include Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, Basic Needs, Well-Being, and Morality, Fulfilling Human Potential, and more recently as editor, Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, First Nation Know-How for Global Flourishing. When we last had Darsha Navais on the program, I read for our listeners part of her epilogue from one of those books. I think it's worth reading again before we begin. The perils are great. Sociopathic institutions and individuals, born of the misunderstanding of child development and its intergenerational effects, are driving ecological and social crises and leading to planetary ruin. It is time to reshape priorities to supporting proper human development. Human nature and the rest of nature depends on restoring the culture commons for the development of our species' typical human nature. And welcome back to Equal Time for Free Thought, Darshan Narayas. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Barry. So, Darsha, when we last had you on Equal Time for Free Thought, we discussed your Evolved Nest project. Much of what uh, we will talk about today will most likely tie into uh, this project one way or another. For those who have missed that episode, um, can you give us a brief summary of what this project is and the key work it's concerned with? Brief, huh? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we now talk about the wellness-informed pathway, and that is uh, begins with the evolved nest, which is providing for the basic needs that we have as a species, so each child is welcomed, uh, has a soothing gestation and birth, is provided with breastfeeding on request for several years, uh, is welcomed um, by a community of, of responsive caregivers who keep the baby calm and in a delightful state while their personality and their neurobiology is being shaped, and they uh, have a lot of affectionate touch by multiple, pretty much 24-7, by multiple responsive, stable, safe caregivers. Uh, usually three is a desirable number of people in love with the baby. And they uh, also have um, playful interactions with caregivers and, and uh, multiple age playmates throughout childhood. So a lot of these characteristics after birth and breastfeeding we all need throughout our our lives, we need to be nested, so that's the affection, the responsive relationships and mentoring, playfulness, uh, self-directed play, so that means not organized sports activities and things like that, or it's more spontaneous and right. interactive and creative. And then uh, also nature immersion and nature connection so that the individual builds ecological wisdom, ecological attachment, ecological know-how for living on their landscape in a sustainable way, and then routine healing practices, which are ways for us to re rebalance ourselves after making mistakes or uh, when we need repair in our relationships or our sense of bonding to the natural world or to our community. So those nine characteristics are the evolved nest, and they start us out on a good pathway towards wellness, towards uh, neurobiology and a sociality and morality that's cooperative and regulated and, and leads to adults who are wise and uh, continue this meeting of basic needs as you know, part of the cycle of uh, a wellness-informed pathway. Right. You know, what I'm realizing as I'm listening to you um, even though, like I, I, I said earlier, you've been on our, our show a few times, it's first dawning on me that everything you just said sounds like what 
we evolved to be. In other words, it sounds like this is what should be like common sense, and yet you have to have you know put together this project because we're so far away from this baseline, this this normalcy humans I would think would be living for the last two hundred thousand years. So it's just amazing that we have to kind of reboot. Well, it's not amazing. It's but it's interesting that we have to kind of reboot ourselves in order to get to the healthy place that we evolved to be in the first place. That's right. Our adaptation, our success was because we were so highly socially cooperative mm-hmm. uh, and regulated by being in community. And that's how we succeeded. And we've kind of fallen a, off the pathway. We've lost our way. We now live in trauma inducing societies, especially in the USA. And so you end up with adults who are not wise or well, who are dysregulated in all sorts of ways, immune system, uh, endocrine systems, social stress response, all sorts of ways. And then they create these systems that keep this, uh, what, what I call a cycle of competitive detachment going. And we're continuing down that path right now. We need to shift back to what helped our ancestors thrive and survive. And adapt. Yeah, competitive detachment. I like that phrase. Um, so speaking of the stress response, uh, the last time we were on, you were on, we also uh, briefly talked about the vagus nerve. Since then, we have read more about polyvagal system. Can you please tell us a little bit about the system and why it's so important for us to understand in our everyday lives? Steve Porges is the one who's been talking about this and developing his polyvagal theory for some decades. Right. And he talks about how we evolved kind of three systems for safety. And uh, I'll talk about them in the order that when a well-constructed, well-developed person activates their stress response or their response to a situation where there's a sense of not being safe. So let me just say first, he talks about neuroception so that in each situation you come to, you determine very subliminally and very quickly whether you feel safe or unsafe. And when you feel safe, you, your uh, social engagement system is operative, and that makes you flexibly attuned to others, your ability to think well and communally. This is our heritage as a very social species. Now, when you feel unsafe, uh, you will move into the sympathetic system, the stress response where you're, you'll activate your muscles for That's just what happens with the stress response and your blood flow shifts away from your higher order thinking and your ability to be open hearted and open minded. And then you, uh, so if you see a shadow across the room, you think, oh, it's a bear. And then your, your stress response kicks in. And, and then, uh, if you're well constructed, well developed and supported, throughout early life especially, you realize, oh, it's just a shadow. It's not a bear. Then your your social engagement system will kick in. You'll reach out to touch someone else to calm down or remember, uh, you know, feel the, kind of a sense of safety because you, your brain is working well to uh, alleviate that stress. If you have a brain that hasn't been well constructed, that you were stressed a lot as a baby where you're left alone, left to cry, yourself to sleep with sleep training, for example, not given the affection and all the uh, elements of the nest that I talked about, you can then have these gaps in how how well your body and your neurobiology work. And so when that you see the, the shadow across the room, you may realize a moment later that it's not a bear, but your system is is kind of off kilter. It doesn't know how to calm down. And so you keep this, uh, what we call the sympathetic system, your stress response keeps 
activated. It's still uh, reverberating. It takes a very long time to calm down because you didn't get the proper support for developing self-regulation as a baby. Uh, if that goes on too long as a baby, that you're, you're crying because you're left alone and you're scared to death, you know, and you're in despair, your body then starts to uh, realize, you know, if I keep this up, I'm going to die. Better shut up. I better calm. I better stop all that and just immobilize myself and stay alive. And so that's the kind of uh, third aspect of the ways our body uh, tries to keep us alive. Uh, so we can we start with that uh, as human beings. We start with that social engagement. Reach out to someone to calm down. Uh, mobilize if that doesn't work uh, or it's not in good um, working order. Then you start to, you know, run away and get oppositional and, you know, that sympathetic system wants to take action, right? Because all your muscles are mobilized. You want to hit somebody. You want to run, run away. And if that doesn't work, if you've learned that those things don't work, but the mobilization does, you go into dissociation. You just kind of uh, disappear from the, emotionally and cognitively from the present moment, just trying to survive. And that's what a lot of abuse victims experience when they've been sexually abused as children, for example, they'll go into this dissociated state. And then that's going to be easily triggered as an adult. If you practice these things a lot as a baby, you're going to easily get triggered. It makes you very attractive to authoritarians, makes mm. you feel like, you know, you want someone in control because you feel so out of control, right? So we've, we're shifting our society towards being authoritarian because of our undercare of young children. How's that? That, yeah, that's a very interesting uh, way of looking at it because it, each side feeds the other. So just um, for, for people who have heard more familiar terms, when our um, vagus nerve or polyvagal system isn't working properly or hasn't gotten the nurture that it needed, especially, like you said, we're very young, the sympathetic system kicks in. That's what we talk about when we hear, hear the term fight or flight, right? So yes. like you said, we're ready to either fight this bear uh, that we may already know is not a bear anymore or you know, flee from it and run away. What is kind of, just to be a little more specific, what's the difference between fleeing the, the scene, so to speak, and disappearing in the disassociative sense? Well, when you fight or flight, your whole body is involved in running away. And when you can't do that, then you have to go into this immobilization state where you're unable to help yourself, and then you... You try to stay alive by becoming immobile. So the, the mouse that just becomes stiff like they're dead when a cat has uh, cornered them, right? They're trying to stay alive and pretend they're dead so that the, the animal will move away. Uh, and you do that with bear, you know, when bear comes after you, depending on which kind of bear it is. Uh, <laughs> so that's a big difference. So you're actually still in, under great stress, uh, but it doesn't look as uh, active to people. I think that's why parents get fooled by when their baby stops crying. Oh, sleep training worked. You mm. know, they think they're doing something good uh, because that's what the, expert tell, the experts have told them to do, so-called experts. Not really. Not in child development. Not in vagal, term, uh, vagal tone development. And so the parents uh, calm themselves with those ideas that the baby's quiet now and so I can relax and they're fine. Right. And of course, if we spend so much of our time in our lives, many of us, um, especially like you said, in this culture here in the United States, in fight, flight or um, in disassociation, of course, that makes us vulnerable to 
authoritarians in our system, and it seems like we become more authoritarian in this culture all the time. Our last president is a good example, not that it's a whole lot better since. So that is a social ramification of our not getting our needs met when we're young. You're listening to the Equal Time for Free Thought broadcast. Equal Time is your evidence-based program informed by scientific naturalism, which addresses issues and events of today's world as means toward building a peaceful, more cooperative, and healthy society. Find us at equaltimeforfreethoughts.org or on our Facebook page. And now, back to the interview. If there is damage to the vagus nerve or to this system, especially early on, are there ways we can work to undo at least some of this damage? And is there a, a, such a thing as being too late, uh, past the point of no return, where we can't fix some of or even a little of the damage? You know, we're really complicated uh, biological, neurobiological creatures, and there's so many layers of so many different things that are developed under, well, a support of early care. And we hardly understand now what it, what thriving looks like. I, I now talk about what's thriving. What, what does the individual look like who's thriving? And what do they look like in relationship? And it's so almost foreign to uh, people from the United States, I think. They don't realize how much we're missing uh, because we assume that selfishness and, and being stressed and angry and, and scared, that's normal for human beings, right? No, it isn't. No, it's not. That's just sort of the caveat. Is there's a lot of things we do not understand about what optimal functioning looks like. So when we talk about repair, when we talk about interventions to help with these things that we have identified being uh, underdeveloped or misdeveloped, uh, we are, you know, speaking about a little corner of our uh, possibilities. So when we talk about vagus nerve. And vagal tone, there's a lot now, if you go to YouTube, various videos showing you how to tune up your vagus nerve. So there's tapping, humming, <laughs> singing, blowing uh, wind instruments, whatever makes you breathe out for a long period of time is actually tuning up the, the vagal, the break, the vagal break, they call it, the, the more positive aspect of the vagus nerve uh, that keeps us healthy. We should say, too, that the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve that is uh, innervates all the major organs of the body. So when you have irritable bowel, for example, that's a sign that the vagus nerve wasn't established properly. Or if you have seizures or other issues with different uh, organs of the body, I know they have uh, stimulants they put in the brain now, right, to keep you from having seizures and right. things they do with the different parts of the body, hearts uh, as well. So there are those kinds of medical technical interventions in terms of our own um, self-healing, without that, without going to the doctor or somebody, uh, I what I do with my students is we play. So we learn, uh, well, first we have to self-calm. So we have to learn techniques for self-calming, and that would be humming, or it would be uh, deep belly breathing, and there's a lot of videos and things on these things you can find. Yoga would qualify as this yeah, as well. Yeah, well done with deep breathing, yeah. So getting back to your body and being attentive to it and it's, you know, when you're getting stressed, then take a deep breath or whatever it is, you, you got to get back into body awareness and um, body care. And then that's not really enough to um, optimize our uh, human 
species capacities. And so what we did in my class, too, was to learn folk song games. And that's uh, oh. so it's a form of play that's uh, semi-structured uh, because undergraduates, college students wouldn't want to just go play. Although we did that too with kids. So that's learning songs like hunting we will go, we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. And then everyone's, you know, moving through in a circle and trying to not get caught. And, and then eventually everyone's caught and you have to be touching people. You're looking them in the eye. You're doing these things that normally you would have done as a well cared for baby that a lot of babies aren't getting now because they're set alone in a playpen or carrier or left with a screen <laughs> to play with and not this right. face, lots of touching and holding uh, in a community of caregivers. And so this is a way for them to get comfortable doing that. And then what we would do is teach those games, uh, song games to kindergartners and play with them. And then the college students would go, wow, they really love this because like, little kids, you know, are jumping up and down. Oh, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> and that, again, is tuning up the vagus nerve. It's growing your right brain, which is another part of the early development that's supposed to be growing more rapidly than the left hemisphere. That's what's normal. And when you don't get this nested care, it's not going to grow as well. And it's the kind of the, it governs self-regulation and empathy and higher consciousness, all sorts of things that therapists tell us that they see uh, couples coming in after the nest is empty if their kids have gone away and the wife is ready to go see the world, and the guy just wants to stay home in his man cave, you know. <laughs> and the therapists say, like Dan Siegel says, oh, yes, that's right brain underdevelopment in the in the male. So he recommends things. Not He doesn't say folk song games like I do, because I was a music teacher. But he says, you know, go learn to dance, you know, ballroom dancing, or do something where you have to be in the present moment, Right. socializing and learning and reacting, and that's going to grow your right hemisphere. And so that's what you want to do is find little kids to go play with, play chase, play wrestling, you know, things. And, you know, you, it takes a while to practice this kind of play if you haven't done it. Uh, little yeah. Kids. Well, yeah. I, I mean to interrupt, sorry, but I'm going to probably bounce back and forth between early life and later life because because that's all connected. And uh, a question I was going to ask later, I might as well ask now, since we're talking about play, you discuss concepts like free play, uh, and you said earlier the importance of multiple age playmates, etc. Could you both maybe get a little more detailed besides the singing, like for people who aren't music teachers <laughs> or former music teachers, um, and a lot of us probably um, as adults also, um, to understand the importance of play? Because it seems like, especially in this culture, after a certain age, and that might change with every generation a little bit, it's like play becomes something that's inappropriate unless it's official play, which is usually unhealthy play that leads to bar hopping and stuff like that. So could you just elaborate a little bit more with, about play, both for young children and for not just college students, but people in their 40s and 50s, for instance? Well, play is part of our heritage, too, that you play right. throughout life, which means bantering and being silly with one another and laughing and trying to make other people laugh in a, you know, not a put-down way, but a um, a way that delights them. And that's what we see in hunter-gatherer societies. That's the kind of society we spent 99% of our history in as a genus. And in these societies of hunter-gatherers and uh, especially small-band hunter-gatherers, a lot of the time is spent in social delight, especially with babies, to uh, make the baby happy. And then the baby learns to make other people happy and 
and it's just a one flow of enjoyment into another. And uh, we know from neuroscientific studies that play turns on all sorts of genes in, in the proper way, makes you more intelligent, helps you control aggression, uh, helps you with social skills, leadership skills. There's some evidence, Stuart Brown of the Institute of Play, National Institute of Play, he suggested that serial killers uh, have not played, did not play in childhood. So there's something about the importance of playing to control aggression. In these hunter-gatherer societies, play and teasing was also used to keep egos from getting too big. So if a hunter got a large animal, somehow it was credited with that, often they change arrows and make it less obvious who's who gets credit but if if he feels uh like he he got the animal the rest of the the crew will tease him you know and say things like oh it's so small we should go back a bunny would be bigger you know (laughs) and they do all this stuff till he starts laughing you know then the the ego is popped Right. And they have all these rules about, uh, you know, hunters can't eat the meat or whatever to try to control the ego. And when they're asked, why do you do that? If we wouldn't do this, he would become dangerous. You know, so big egos are dangerous and we got them everywhere. Right. In our planet. Right. So part of playing is to keep the ego down, because if you're if you're too aggressive with your play partner, they're not going to play with you anymore. Right. So you have to learn to control and be more egalitarian. So this egalitarianism, which distinguishes us from chimpanzees and other apes is something that developed uh, the anthropologists tell us because we have a big social brain and to have a big social brain you got to have a lot of calories and to get a lot of calories mothers need more help to feed their young and so it's a collective cooperative child raising really important for our species and uh, part of that is you uh, learn to mind read you learn how to get along well all that is part of our heritage. So play is included in that. So egalitarian, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, egalitarianism I've heard from different perspectives depending on who we're speaking with is something either natural to our species or has to be learned. So you're saying that it's natural to our species as long as we get our needs met as infants and such. Otherwise, we have to relearn it via the kind of example you gave with um, the hunter and the ego. You know, our brains are kind of a hodgepodge of things. So mm-hmm. we do have those survival systems, what some people call the reptilian brain, which is uh, oriented to dominance uh, hierarchy. So our primate brain, we still have that in us. Uh, And so what I have suggested is that when we don't provide the evolved nest, we're enhancing that part of our brain. So what we're doing by undercaring for children is we're then going back, back to chimpanzee ways of being primate ways of being rather than our heritage as human beings is to be egalitarian and highly social and, and cooperative and actually caring for others. More like the bonobo, for instance. Right. A fellow producer was lucky uh, to have the assistance of La Leche League when she had her baby. She felt it was uh, significant in how things occurred. For example, she was taught about both breastfeeding and skin-to-skin contact. Um, you mentioned this a little earlier. Can you tell us more about the science of breastfeeding as well as skin-to-skin contact and the importance of, of both? Uh, well, breastfeeding is just this unbelievable, magical thing. <laughs> you could only call it magical because the mother's breasts are a science laboratory that creates exactly what that baby needs. So if it's a boy... 
the milk is different than if the baby's a girl. Hmm. If the baby's in a growth spurt, the milk will provide what's needed. And if there's an infectious agent in the region, the milk, uh, the breasts will create an antibody. The, there's thousands of ingredients. We hardly understand what breast milk is all about, except the studies that uh, are done are typically done on for three months versus three months, three months of formula versus three months of breast milk. That's pretty inadequate, like a drop in the bucket, really. Uh, and we find all sorts of differences between those um, brains. Babies who are breastfed have greater myelinization in the in the brain. That means there's better communication among the neurons. And this is just three months of breastfeeding. Right. Uh, it should go much longer, which I'll talk about in a moment. And uh, we know that there's just a greater, uh, the, the brain grows bigger the first year of life. You know, we're born 18 months early compared to other animals. We resemble fetuses. And the brain plates do not, the skull plates do not close until after 18 months, expecting that brain to grow a great deal. And what grows that brain? Breastfeeding and touch and responsive care, the kind of nesting uh, that I'm talking about. Uh, and you can see, you know, people who have small heads, somehow I think they didn't get enough of those things in early life. Because after that, the, the brain bones will seal. The other thing is uh, breast milk also shapes the jaw. And they now have some interdisciplinary research showing that 300 years ago or so, when women went to work in the textile factories, the skulls were different before that than they are now, uh, the jaws. Hmm. And what we've done now without breastfeeding, so they stopped breastfeeding as much. And in the last few hundred years, then our jaws have shrunk and so much so that we have don't have enough room for our teeth, so we uh, need orthodontry, but also it causes sleep problems. We have so many sleep problems now. Uh, so there's a lot that uh, breast that's breastfeeding, right, because the muscles of the, the child's cheeks have to work so hard to get the milk. When you bottle feed, you're just pouring the milk down that child's throat. They're not deciding how much they want to eat and stopping when they're full with a bottle. And they uh, don't feel very much control. Uh, and uh, so bottle feeding, uh, even a breast milk, is an issue. You've got to be careful because breast milk in the morning has all sorts of energizing ingredients, uh, whereas breast milk from the evening has sleep-inducing ingredients. So you need to label your bottles if you are pumping your breast milk, or else you're going to energize the child at night when you don't want them to mm-hmm. uh, Breast milk is just, just amazing. Our length of time... Uh, what's been observed in hunter-gatherer societies all over the world, the average length of breastfeeding is typically four years. So weaning at age four, which blows the mind of every Westerner, I think. Right. But that's because it has all the immunoglobulins you need to build the immune system and all the precursors for the neurotransmitters for a good brain. Uh, and you can see when you compare when people have talked about the intelligence of people who are nested versus people who aren't, you know, it's quite different. They, they have a lot more capacities than we do. Uh, so breastfeeding is really important. Part of that is skin-to-skin contact. We know that being apart from your mother uh, dysregulates all sorts of systems, especially early on. And they've done some studies with animals like uh, horses and sheep, I think, because they have singles or twins. And when you separate a baby, an offspring, from its mother just an hour a day for the first few days of life, it affects their adolescence. They're less socially skilled. So 
there are, you know, we can do kinds of these kinds of experiments with animals. We can't really do them uh, ethically right. with humans, but we're doing them anyway, right? We're doing all sorts of things, pulling the rug out from early childhood, and then we think, oh, people are just selfish and violent by nature. Um, okay, so there's two kind of separate issues a little bit. We're kind of affecting in a negative way, or I'm not sure of a better word, our own evolution by these changes over the last few hundred years um, that have changed everything from the jaw size and intelligence. And yeah, I would like you to say a little bit more about, about how we how we know, um, how do we test for that, inadvertently even, uh, ethically, or just by seeing what's around us? What tests have been done or studies have been have been done to show the correlation or even the causation between the lack of four years, perhaps, of uh, healthy breastfeeding in the right order in morning versus evening, boy versus girl, and what a lot of the pathologies we find around us in adulthood in this society, for example, as regarding um, intelligence as well. There are hardly any lengthy studies of breastfeeding comparing them to infant formula. Formula has a couple few dozen ingredients. Uh, They're not human ingredients. Some of them, uh, it's not very um, well-regulated either, formula. And then you've got breast milk with thousands of, of ingredients tailored to our species because there's different kinds of breast milk. For predators, they have thick milk so that the mother can go off and go hunting. Uh, but not us. We have a thin milk, which means it's supposed to be ingested regularly, frequently, and pretty much every 20 minutes in the first uh, for a newborn, a young baby. Uh, that's normal because they need to be washed with all the hormones in that milk as their body and their brain are is developing so rapidly. Thousands of synapses a second are, are growing in the brain of that baby. And so you need to keep that milk coming because they're getting the right precursors, the right biochemistry for healthy development. So uh, in terms of understanding differences, I mean, we have to use the transdisciplinary research here because... The research hasn't been done in a particular area all by itself. So we can look at the hunter-gatherers who do provide the nest and see how calm and intelligent and how cooperative they are, how how they flow with life, and they are very attuned to one another, and they're very healthy and happy. Now They have a high uh, child mortality rate before age 15, which we used to have until about 150 years ago. Uh, that's kind of a normal thing, I think, for our species. We don't think it's normal, uh, but that would be uh, the children who have weaker immune systems or weaker genetic profiles or less support in their lives. They're the ones who don't uh, live as long or some accidents happen. Now, we, we, um, we kind of want to keep everyone alive now for as long as possible. Which, you know, that's an ethical issue too, right? Mm-hmm. Why should you live extra time uh, and then all these other animals and creatures uh, we exterminate, for example? <laughs> for yeah. Open. Yeah. Who decides that? <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm not sure if I've answered your question. It is a difficult way of going about it since there isn't direct um, or very much direct study on, on breastfeeding, for instance. But, you know, like you said, looking over different uh, disciplines um, for that and for skin to skin. One thing. Yeah. James Prescott. Yes, I know of him. uh, He looked at the anthropological database of over 400 societies and tried to figure out what was the difference between the violent ones and the peaceable ones. Mm -hmm. And what he found was 80% of the variance, 80% of the predictive power 
uh, laid in uh, breastfeeding, two and a half years at least of breastfeeding, plus lots of carrying of the child. And then the rest of the variants, all of it was explained if you added no sanctions of premarital sex. So very much oriented to the body erotic uh, touching and feeding and being, you know, in that kind of engaged community. Uh, that was 100% of the variance for which societies were peaceable. That's interesting. And that leads me to the question about, which I asked before in a different context, as we move through our lives, and you know, decade by decade, if we haven't, and again, many of us haven't, for various reasons, had the but the, the healthiest breastfeeding techniques from our families, from our parents and from our mothers, and or the right amount of touch and skin to skin, which we all have learned um, is so important from the time we're born. What do we do? Well, first of all, how does that affect our relationships, especially our intimate relationships? And what do we do about this when, say, we're, I don't know, 40, and then we learn about, we read Darshan Arvais or other people or Prescott and say, ah, that explains a lot of things. Now what do I do? Because right. we're, yeah, because we're living with the traumas or with the inefficiencies of of having not had that kind of childhood. Right. So all sorts of systems can be misdeveloped. Stress response. So you can, if you take one at a time, stress response. You can learn to calm yourself. You can learn uh, to tune up your vagus nerve so that it kicks in appropriately. Uh, you can these things. I always recommend play because it involves lots of touching and responsiveness for uh, helping us heal ourselves. Now, there's other aspects, though. There's the microbiome that's affected, you know, by breast milk versus formula. And, and then the, the kind of we don't even understand it enough to how, how do we uh, get back to what well lengthy breastfeeding does for uh, establishing the microbiome, which is where most of our immune system lies in the gut. Uh, so, you know, taking probiotics and stuff, I mean, that's all still in experimental stages, I think. Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, the endocrine system, so the oxytocin system, for example, uh, which is related to the vagus nerve function. If you have trouble being intimate with somebody, that is probably because your vagus nerve wasn't established properly. So, again, it goes back to helping uh, reestablish that. But there are uh, some things that are... Uh, established during sensitive periods that are really hard to change. So the animal studies with rats show that if you have a high nurturing mother in the first 10 days of life, doesn't have to be your mother biologically, mm-hmm. uh, you develop uh, the ways to control anxiety epigenetically. If you don't have that high nurturing mother in those 10 days of life, forget it. You can't control your anxieties with new situations unless you take drugs, unless you're given drugs as a rat. So then that's that's kind of what we've done now in our society. Very, very highly medicated society we live in, yes. Yeah, and then you look for, you know, opioids or whatever it is to help yourself calm, and you self-medicate with alcohol, mm-hmm. whatever it is, uh, other addictions, right? You're trying to live, you're trying to, you know, uh, thrive, but it's all kind of twisted because of the the misregulation, dysregulation of things. So, you know, this, these are hard questions i think right. uh, back to play <laughs> play right. play play i was i was asking because um well this is connected to so many different things that um discussed on this radio program before um we haven't had uh johan harry on the program but i was really affected by his book lost connections 
which is related to um, all different areas. He named, I think, seven or maybe nine different ways we've become disconnected as human beings, including, like you said earlier, from nature itself, which we are a part of, um, and from each other and, and lots of other uh, areas. Also, you uh, actually, on one of your websites, uh, shared information about uh, Gabor, as Amashari says his name, Gabor Meets or Mateus? Mate. Okay. Gabor Mate, uh, his film, The Wisdom of Trauma, how we derive wisdom from experiences that hurt us early on, and there's all different kinds of, you know, behavioral modifications I guess we can do with ourselves, with therapy, uh, DBT type therapy. So rather than believe that if we didn't get what, which is true, unfortunately, that we didn't get what we needed as infants, that all is lost, um, there are, besides medications um, and play, probably other ways, I'm assuming, that we could um, better understand ourselves or, or do certain types of therapy or be involved in certain types of therapy. Um, I've heard a lot about inner child work, for instance, to try to mediate some of this so that we can have healthy, intimate relationships or any relationships that we can have more connection with nature, with ourselves, with each other, with with the other aspects of our humanity that we've lost connection with um, over the last 10,000 years, especially, I guess, over the last 5,000. I'm not a therapist. Depends on what your issue is. And you kind of have to follow your intuition, sit down and contemplate and, and then see what pops up because the universe provides things for you. you know, I'm, I'm a fan of David Baum's uh, understanding of things where he talks about there's two kinds of thinking there's insight intelligence which comes from outside of you so when people have a eureka insight it's not you doing that it's coming in you're you've opened yourself up because maybe you've focused on this problem for a while and then you're ready to receive an answer or a an insight uh, and then the other kind of thinking is the one that we do in our heads they, they go in these loops and our culture does that all the time these cultural loops of ego-oriented, you know, uh, we're the greatest and it's great progress and humans are, you know, can figure everything out on their own. And that's where we fall down and that's where our culture has misdirected us, has uh, uh, led us to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, <laughs> identified by E.O. Wilson, right? The yes. degradation, climate instability or global warming, uh, massive extinctions and massive toxification of oil, uh, I'm sorry, of soil. Uh, water and air and we're there and we probably could add a fifth pandemics because that's from the deforestation and the intrusions we're doing on the rest of the wildlife so um we are there because we lost our way we've that being trauma informed is all fine and good right but it's not going to get us to optimization it's not getting us back on that wellness informed pathway which is what i talk about uh it's good to know be trauma informed but it's not enough we need to be wellness informed. So how do we do that? There's so much information on the Internet. A lot of it is um, what we back in the skeptic circles I used to run uh, with um, would say is new agey or, you know, non-scientific, whether it's trauma or and it, all this speaks to me of trauma. I mean, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, what we're doing to ourselves, our species, our planet, other species. There's so much information out there Um and it's hard for people who haven't, especially in this culture, lived in a uh, with a, a, an educational system that actually works for us, that teaches us critical thinking and teaches us how to determine and differentiate between things. And rather just, it's all about fear-based. Everyone's opinion is equal, therefore nothing, you know, is true. It's it's, it's so much cultural relativism. How, how do we navigate everything we see and read and hear? No, 
kind of get an idea of what makes sense since we're not none of us one scientist I had on said we all kind of are born scientists cause we all can do our own kind of experimenting but how do we kind of navigate the the muddy waters out there in, in your perspective <laughs> I know I'm asking the, I'm asking big questions <laughs> well I uh, talk about you know the wellness informed pathway to understand what that is that right. means you meet basic needs what are those basic needs well we have animal needs for nourishment and warm protection we kind of the parents a lot of parents stop there and they forget or don't understand that we're mammals and we need affection and play lots of that and we're social mammals and we need lots of bonding and social enjoyment and then we're human mammals which means we need a lot of intersubjectivity that means shared mental, cognitive, emotional communication with others and immersion in a communal life of support, apprenticeship, and lots of mentoring. And and uh, we have to understand then, too, what thriving looks like for us. A thriving individual is, has a quiet mind, has inner happiness, is vital and fully alive, is honest, has a sense of uh, non-hostile humor, has outstanding memories and senses and builds habits at will, has know-how for getting along with the uh, landscape and with other people, is connected to spirit, and then they, they enjoy being with others. They are relationally attuned and empathic and listen unconditionally, and they're communally oriented and helpful and show love and forgiveness and generosity, and they have respect for ancestors and future generations, a sense of responsibility towards the web of life. And where do you find these thriving people? In traditional First Nation or indigenous communities. And we have much to learn from those communities because they're the ones who provide the evolved nest and they follow this wellness-informed pathway. And so they're able to be relationally engaged. Their morality is about attunement to the others and they use their imaginations or their abstract thinking for a communal orientation, for helping uh, enhance the well-being of all. And then their understanding of the earth is uh, Aldo Leopold. I have this quote here uh, that really kind of puts it succinctly. What's this know-how for sustainable earth-centered living? It's a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. And so we need to kind of revamp our baselines, our baselines for what we think is uh, how we raise children, our baselines for what we think is a normal human being and, and what that looks like, and our baselines for how to live on the earth and with one another. And that, again, is the wellness-informed pathway. So I think we're going to put together curricula at um, mm -hmm. Evolve Nest we need that. so that people can go and, and immerse themselves in this information because they don't get it anywhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, unless you're really paying attention and immersed in a traditional First Nation community, uh, which is hard to do these days because so many are under just duress, mm -hmm. uh, kind of don't know this, like you're saying. You are listening to the Equal Time for Free Thought podcast. Equal Time is your evidence-based program informed by scientific naturalism, which addresses issues and events of today's world as a means towards building a peaceful, more cooperative, and healthy society. Find us at equaltimeforfreethought.org or on our Facebook page. And now, back to the interview. A lot of people who are um, more inclined to, uh, away from this, from these kind of social scientists of psychology, anthropology, sociology, and are more interested in political philosophy and such with, you know, who are well informed and who are looking towards the same kind of future healthy society as you and I are. I guess I walked the line between both of those. They, you know, the question is, do we need to change systems 
in in order to be able to do the things that you're discussing, or do we do these things to the best of our ability, which I guess, I don't know how limited that is, depending on who you are and where you are and what part of the world or what part of this country even, um, and try to change from within so that the systems uh, start changing. It seems like, you know, a losing battle when you have an authoritarian, capitalistic, neoliberal system that we've seen, you know, the results of what that doesn't allow us to do, like during the whole pandemic, as opposed to everything you're discussing that most people not only haven't heard about, but if you, if I spoke to them about it or played this program for them, they'd be like, yeah, okay, sure, right, what planet are you on? <laughs> so, it, you know, it's like trying to mix the, the idea, or trying to understand how we move forward when the, I guess the easy way to say it is when the system is rigged to work against us, no matter what's, how many steps we try to take forward, no matter what curriculum you could put up on your website, I don't want to, you know, be apocalyptic, <laughs> but how do we, in your mind and, and stuff that you've done, how do we navigate between these two realms, between the, the science and the politics of, of our culture that has been created for us, basically, by those who are those few who think they're thriving, although you know, that could be argued they're not either, regardless of their money or their power. I know, I keep asking such big questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I, I think we have to start where we are and uh, pay attention right. to right now. Am I in my body? Am I honoring my, my um, basic needs? Am I... And part of those basic needs is to have good relationships. So am I honoring my relationships? And that means not just with people, but with all the other than human uh, beings around me. Am I honoring the spider I meet? Am I honoring the moth, the uh, squirrel? Uh, am I careful with the plants that I meet? Am I following what we call the honorable harvest, not taking too much, uh, leaving some for others, uh, asking permission? And so taking up this immersed, deep way of being in the present moment is a way for us to change things. We, we don't have control over a lot of things, but we do have control over where we put our attention. Are we putting it on things that are beautiful? Are we creating a, a heart-centered life instead of, uh, you know, being all worried and fearful and anxious or controlling and, you know, vicious in a way towards trying to make things happen to other that uh, make other people do things we want. Uh, so it's back here. Am I attuned to my deeper self, my my deep heart self? I mean, you have to take some time to contemplate or meditate or pray to get in touch uh, and sometimes it's walking, being outside and sitting under a tree or uh, wherever and getting in tune with the universe. This is vision quest, right? Stuff. This right. is what the native peoples do. Uh, they're out there and they know that they're connected. And you have different time periods when you go out and you take a vision quest and you, when there's a transition. And we kind of need to do that now, um, all of us, and come back to being on the earth. We are here on the earth. And even if we all die tomorrow, we're still part of the earth. To not worry so much, you know, about death, which is when you're left brain focused, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, because the left brain is the ego consciousness that thinks it knows everything and is scared to death of disappearing. Whereas, right. of course, right hemisphere consciousness is like everything's connected, everything's alive, and there's dynamic flow going on. And, oh, why are you worried so much? So it's a good right? balance between the two that we need, right? Yeah, right. So... 
Um, yeah, even even the few things that we feel or you feel we might have control over, that also depends on what our histories have been, both biological um, in terms of early childhood needs and, and otherwise. Um, knowledge, though, itself is a determinant, as uh, I like to say. So having programs um, like I've done and other people have done in podcasts and having people like you on, on these programs is a way to get this information out to whomever may be listening. Um, and sometimes it's preaching to the choir, unfortunately. But sometimes you do get to reach out to a few other people and little by little. But I agree with you. All we can do is what we can do within ourselves and those around us, human or otherwise, um, and just start from here. Your work, Darsha, is so important and greatly appreciated by um, us at Equal Time Free Thought and many others. Can you share with us uh, where you are currently with work regarding Evolved Nest? You know, I think you read you said this a little bit earlier on, or more importantly, as to where um, you're going next uh, for your current or potential future work. Oh, well, thanks for having me, and thanks for asking. Uh, I have a book in press with four arrows called Restoring the Kinship Worldview. Hmm. We take uh, Native American, mostly uh, indigenous quotes, and we talk about them about the different precepts, uh, we picked 28, of, of the kinship worldview, which is the indigenous worldview, which is shared all over the world and used to be everybody universal until the last uh, probably millennia, maybe, certainly the last few hundred years, when the Enlightenment view has taken over and divorced us from relationships and connection and everything, right? So I have that book in press. I have another book on... Um, Nature-based parenting, It's that's not the title, we don't know the title yet, but with uh, Gay Bradshaw, who's a specialist in animal rescue and animals, uh, and so we're blending evolved nest of humans with the evolved nest of animals, uh, and that'll be fun. Um, and a primal parenting book in press, too, with Oxford. And then I've got a grad student still, I'm I'm retired from my uh, teaching and meetings and committees and all that, but I still have a grad student and she specializes in vagal turn vagal tone analysis, and so we have a bunch of different uh, academic papers coming out several this year already. Um, so we're gonna have to get you back to talk about some of these things. In closing, could you give uh, us an example of one of those 28 um, indigenous quotes? that maybe just one that you, I don't know if you like one more than the other, but one that you can share with us as an example of what's in that book, or will be in that book. Uh, let me think for yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah, take your time. While you're looking, it's, it's amazing, Darsha, every time I spoke with you. This is the fourth time I've spoken with you, and speaking about an evolving life, I'm, I'm really impressed by everything that you do and have done in all the different careers and opportunities you've jumped on to, for the betterment of all of us. So thank you for that. Sure, you're welcome. All right, here's one. Here's one of the 28 that we talk about. That earth and all systems are living and loving. So this is sentience in the whole earth, a panpsychism, really. And, you know, Native peoples have an awareness of this. And we have been, it's been squelched out of us because when we were little, we had this awareness and one thing that I've done, I was just speaking in Paris at a, the business school of the world in Sied and uh, gave a 10-minute talk. I only was giving 10 minutes. But I hmm. asked, uh, wouldn't it be nice if the business world could be focused on helping us restore the wellness-informed pathway 
instead of supporting and fueling the trauma inducing pathway because business makes a lot of money from all the pharmaceuticals we need right mm -hmm. right <laughs> and you're, you're, you're talking to the right group of people that's for sure <laughs> right? I think so. yeah and i talked about what uh you know what thriving looks like and and what wellness looks like and then i said you know i'm really impatient i think we need to move now aren't you impatient too how about uh let's get our well-being going and let's do some humming and so we hummed hmm. <laughs> Hmm. And then I said, business people humming, that's, well, maybe in France. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they did it. They, well, I had them first stand up and, and pretend they were holding a baby because uh, I talked okay. about okay. how babies, what fathers, their testosterone goes down when they have a baby, right? Uh, and I said, well, but you know, we uh, evolved in groups. Right. We evolved in multiple age groups. Men were not isolated from babies. <laughs> yeah, I meant you know, to ask you that earlier. What's the role of of men in in because you were speaking about in the importance of women in breastfeeding, um, but in the village, men seem to be part of that. I think. Yes, absolutely. Fathers were part of that. Allo parent, the other mothers, other motherers, uh, and hmm. so when and the experiments show that when men hold a baby, their testosterone goes down, whether they're a father or not. And their empathy goes up. So that's our baseline, right? Wow. So I ended this talk, this very fast talk, <laughs> saying, you know, it's really relationships all the way down. It's not turtles all the way down. It's relationships. And our first relationship is with Mother Earth. And this is a song I'd like you to sing with me because it gets you back into that awareness. And I, I it came to me when I was walking. And you can do it when you're walking, and it goes like this. We love the earth, we love the earth, all our kin. We love the earth, we love the earth, all our kin. And then the, the verses are what you see. Who do you love? Oak tree. Who do you love? Pine tree. Who do you love? Sassafras. We love the earth, we love the earth, all our kin. We love the earth, we love the earth, all our kin. You can keep going. Mm. And because the Native Americans tell us the, the natural world needs nurturing too, so let's do it. And to walk that line um, between the things that we learn from uh, from those who have come before us and, and not throw out, obviously, because uh, you're a social scientist after all, the science that we have learned as well without the influence of money and power is is a good way i think to connect all different kinds of people on this planet to this cause thank you for sharing that that line i'm definitely looking forward to seeing um reading that book when it comes out and thank you again darshan advice for being on equal time for free thought it was a great pleasure thanks so much barry and you've been listening to the first podcast version of equal time for free thought if you missed any portion of the show or want to listen to our archives dating back to 2002 please visit EqualTimeForFreeThought.org. This has been Barry Seidman, and we have had the pleasure of interviewing social and research psychologist Darshar Navais, author of a variety of books in this field, including Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, and Basic Needs, Well-Being, and Morality, Fulfilling Human Potential. I'd like to thank Penelope Mann, Kirsten McCarthy, and Alex Seidman for lending their voices to identify this podcast. And to my co-producer for this first podcast edition of Equal Time, Melody Ray, for her insight, questions, and advice. 
For Melody Ray, this is Barry Seidman asking you to tune in, pay it forward, and question, question everything. everything. Clear we 